like to start by talking again a bit, and then we'll do a couple of exercises as we go along here. Give you a sense in this last evening of applying the meditation or connecting the meditation to our life in addition to the ways that we've worked with it already. There's a spirit of integration that's central to Buddhist practice and particularly to this way of Vipassana. There's a teaching that's quite relevant to this point. It's a teaching called the near enemies. In the development of meditation, it's said that if one proceeds over time, there will come four divine qualities that get cultivated or nourished in the heart of ourselves, our being. The first is the quality of greater loving kindness. And kindness is really essential for meditation to work. If you're always fighting against yourself, you're not accepting what's here. The second is greater compassion. The third is the divine quality of joy, and particularly joy in the happiness of all beings, of others as well as oneself, sympathetic joy. And the fourth is the quality of profound equilibrium or equanimity or balance. Now, each of these has a near enemy. That is, each has a state that comes in masquerades like it, but is really not the same at all. The near enemy to loving kindness is attachment. You may have noticed it in your life. You love a thing or a person or something, which means you feel one with them. You feel connected. There's this genuine appreciation. And then this other force slips in that doesn't want them to leave or doesn't want them to change or in some way tries to possess them. It really sees them as separate and grasps. The near enemy to compassion is pity. Oh, that poor person, they're suffering as if they were somehow different than us. When real compassion sees someone else's suffering and knows it because of one's own suffering. We both suffer. We're in the soup together. The near enemy to sympathetic joy is the comparing mind. They got more or less or equal to what I do. It's that quality that tries to measure everything. And the most important one for tonight, the near enemy to equanimity is indifference, is the quality of not caring. I'm fine. I mean, it's all okay. It's all passing anyway. So who cares if I stay married or I get divorced or if I keep the job or I don't? It's sort of the old hippie style, you know? What does it matter anyway? It's all changing. Indifference, as in all of these, in pity and in uh, attachment and so forth, is a force to separate you from the world. Indifference says, I don't care about it. I've got mine, or I'll go my way and forget about everything else. And it's really based on fear. True equanimity, just as true loving kindness is an openness to experience another person as part of yourself, True equanimity is a balance in the midst of life. Instead of a running away or not caring, it's an ability to open to all the changes and find a place of uh, equilibrium, of having a sense of peacefulness in the midst of all these changes. So that what spiritual life asks is not, 
a removal from the world, which we sometimes hear or think, but quite the opposite, something much harder, a going into the very center of our life and finding the peace there. There's a wonderful teacher named Vimla Thakkar in India, who's a woman that worked for a long time in the land reform movement of uh, Gandhi and Vinoba Bhabe uh, and, and rural development. She's a meditation master who was trained and uh, in some ways a Dharma heir to Krishnamurti. And after doing a lot of development work, she went around the world teaching meditation retreats. And I went to her ashram to visit her on a tour where we were talking about spirituality and social responsibility with people in India, Mother Teresa, the Dalai Lama, and others for National Public Radio. And I went to interview her because she was back working in the villages. And I said, is that because you found that meditation didn't really work and that you really need to go back and just get into what people's lives are doing? And she was very offended by that. She said, not at all, sir. She said, in fact, uh, it's this way. I am a lover of life, sir. And as a lover of life, I cannot stay out of any area of life. So if I walk by a village and there is dirty water and people are hungry and I know something about cleaning water or how to grow food, how can I but respond to that? Or if I'm in Chicago or Amsterdam or New York and I see, see people suffering as deeply as in India, suffering from loneliness, suffering from uh, lack of connection with one another or with their own deeper spiritual understanding, how can I but respond to that sorrow in the same way? There's no difference. The Sufis put it this way, praise Allah, but tie your camel to the post. Right? <laughs> that you want to have a spiritual life, but it needs to be connected to this moment, to this body, to what's here right now. The meaning of this is found in this word a bodhisattva, which is central to the Buddhist tradition. The Buddha was a bodhisattva. Anyone who undertakes the spiritual practice becomes a bodhisattva. Bodhisattva, bodhi means liberation or awakened, and sattva is a being who is committed to awakening, committed to use the various circumstances, even if the sun arises in the west instead of the east, even if there's <coughs> terrible suffering and pain, it doesn't matter. Whatever there is, to use the circumstances of life to develop the infinite capacity for compassion and understanding or wisdom, to use all situations. Now, remember last week I talked about meditation as a deep process of listening, that's part of what allows this to be so. If we sit and open our hearts to feel our fears and our greed and our anger and rage and prejudice and desire and restlessness and our love and joy and all of those things that are in us, because I assure you they're in there. If you look, I promise you, you'll find them. Then when somebody else touches their fear or their aggression, or their sorrow. We'll really understand them. It won't be pity, but it will be a deep understanding. We need to do that to bring compassion to this earth. Somebody has to do it, and it's us. If one is to do good, says William Blake, it must be done in the minute particulars. General good is the plea of the hypocrite, 
the flatterer and the scoundrel. If you want to make spiritual practice alive, it's in how you drink your tea. It's in how you drive, whether you cut people off on the road or whether you are as spiritual behind the wheel in some way. And I don't mean that in some idealistic sense, but whether you see that that's a place that you can either be aggressive and harmful or you can be calm or compassionate. And it's true of every aspect of life. It's how you live with people. And more than anything, it takes a lot of courage to do that. This is from Martin Luther King. We will match your capacity to inflict suffering with our capacity to endure suffering. We will meet your physical force with soul force. We will not hate you, but we cannot in all good conscience obey your unjust laws. But we will soon wear you down by our capacity to suffer. And in winning our freedom, we will so appeal to your heart and conscience that we will win your freedom as well. Isn't that amazing? And it rings true, doesn't it, when you hear it. There is a power in us that can make the worst circumstances and believe me, sooner or later you will face the worst circumstances. Everybody will. The things we most love change or die. Difficulties come. It's part of birth and death. Can we take that and make that into our practice? To make it all a practice. To see this is to see a kind of strange dichotomy in making it all practice. One is that it is unpossessable. We don't own this body. We barely control our minds and our feelings, just barely, kind of like a ship out of control, a little bit down through the straits. Maybe we won't crash into the reef or whatever it is. We, we possess nothing, really, except that we have this capacity to awaken or to love, which is an extraordinary thing to have. We don't even possess that. That is the nature of consciousness. And when we stop struggling or fighting or being lost or deluded, that shines, it shows itself. Now, even though it's selfless, there is nobody, there's no one who owns this. In fact, if the deeper you look in meditation, the more you see that there isn't anybody here at all. <laughs> there isn't. There's just kind of this dance of light and shadow and form and color and thought with no separation. The separation is made only because we believe in it. And it's an experience that's true. So it's selfless and unpossessable in one way, and impermanent in all changes. On the other hand, even though that's true, and one might say, well, then what does it matter? People suffer. The earth can be destroyed ecologically or it can be preserved. We care about the people that are around us in all kinds of ways. And even though it's impermanent, instead of saying, well, it doesn't matter, another response is to say, it's a very short dance. It only We're only here for a little while. And maybe the best way to live in it is to really honor it and value it and live from one day to another and one moment to another as if it were our last as if this were the only moment, which it is. That makes the teachings very simple. I remember going to see the Dalai Lama on that 
trip with my wife and a couple of friends. We went to interview him, and he's really busy. He's the head of state in exile, and he has all these disciples and political problems and so forth. He still saw us. He was still very gracious. And he'd been to our center in Massachusetts. I'd met him a few times. I don't really know him at all. He's a wonderful fellow, really quite extraordinary being. And he said, yes, for social responsibility and spirituality, I'd love to talk to you. So he did. We had this audience at his big temple in Bodh Gaya. And it's not like he sits on a throne, which some gurus do. He ushers you in, and he said, sit down, and he poured us tea, and now how can I help you? He really takes care of you, very gracious. We asked all our questions, and we were about to go. And he said, don't you want to take my picture? <laughs> and we all had cameras, and we were so excited, because was, it was so terrific to be with him that we kind of forgotten. But we were all loaded down with these cameras. So we said, yes, of course, we just forgot. So we said, I'll tell you what, you give your cameras to my attendant, who knows how to work all these Western cameras, and then we can be in the picture together. So we gave our cameras over, and he stood up, and my wife and I were on one side, and these two journalist friends that we traveled with were on the other. He put his arms around the four of us, and we're all just grinning from <laughs> ear to ear. It's just great, you know? And so all the pictures are done and smiling. We had it on our refrigerator for about five years. There's a Dalai Lama. <laughs> and then he grabs my hand. He turned to me, and he looked. And I thought he was going to say, how's the teaching going? How's the meditation center? How are the retreats? In a sense, how's business, you know, because we're in the same company, right? <laughs> Selling the same product, more or less. But he didn't at all. He looked at me and he said, you're so skinny, you should eat more. <laughs> and it was like, this is the, this is the highest tantric teachings. It's not a question of what extraordinary states of mind can you attain, although they do come at times through meditation, and you can learn things from them. But what matters is then when you come back, how do you treat your breath, your body, your feelings, your sexuality, the people you live with, the plants in your neighborhood, the people on the highways, and the whole of the earth? And that's really what meditation is about. Now, to give you a good example, we'll do an eating meditation followed by a walking meditation. So I'm going to pass out these little boxes of raisins. Take just, there aren't one for everyone, take, open it and take just four or five raisins and then pass the box back so that the people behind you can all have some raisins. And don't eat them yet. Okay? Now, I'll speak while you take the raisins. We spend a lot of time in our life eating, buying food, cooking, um, getting it from the supermarkets or growing it in our garden, storing it away, taking it out, seasoning it, chopping it up, cooking it, serving it on the table, eating with our friends, then washing the dishes, putting all the food away, often two, three, four times a day. Most of that, for many of us, is done on automatic pilot. Do you know what I'm speaking of? We do it, but we do it pretty unconsciously. Now, if you recall on the first night, I spoke about how right speech, working with conscious speech is a part of spiritual life or, or non-harming other beings. Now we work with the breath or with sounds. 
eating, all this big activity can be made a meditation. Now, how would you do a meal doing eating meditation? We'll practice. First of all, you take your food, and if you want to do it in a formal way, you kind of slow down. You take your plate of food, and you put it in front of you. Some people like to say a little prayer or blessing. Thanks for the food. Thank you to the sun and the rain and the earth and the people who grew it and Mother Earth and stars and all of that. You can do that if you like. Wonderful. Thanks to the earthworms that helped and the ants and bees. That's what makes your food possible, you know. Without bees, you could not live. You would die if there were no bees. You would die if there were no earthworms. Your life depends on earthworms. It does. We're all interconnected. So take care of earthworms, because they take care of you. So then you're done, you're a blessing, whatever kind you do. You then sit with your plate in front of you for 60 seconds and do nothing. You just sit there and relate to that silence. And maybe you feel hungry. So you finally stop just eating when you're hungry and you feel hunger because the world runs on hunger and desire and you're going to stop and face it for 60 seconds. Is your belly hungry? Your eyes hungry? Is your tongue hungry? What does hunger feel like? Hunger, hunger, you experience it, and you make your peace with it. You understand it a bit more. Or maybe other feelings come. You notice those. Look at your food. Then when you're ready, you begin to eat, and you do it slowly and mindfully, the same way we'd follow the breath or be aware of other things in the body. Let's practice with the raisins. You hold them out in one hand. First, there's just the seeing. You don't even see raisins. What you see... Raisins is the word. Look, do you see raisins? You see color and shape. And we put all these words on things. But see, there's certain form, shape, color. To get to that level of experiencing what's here in this moment. Then certain feelings might arise. Maybe you're hungry, so you salivate. You feel that, hunger, salivation. Maybe you hate raisins, so <laughs> hatred arises. Okay, hate it, and you just be with that. Keep looking. <clears throat> Stay with that. This is food. This comes from the earth. It was plants, grapes. Then it was. Then it died, right? It was organic. Then it was in the sun for a while, and now we eat it. We're part of the earth. We're animals. Now take your fingers and touch it. You won't feel raisins either. What do you feel? Sticky, soft, certain pressure. And then when you're ready, take a couple in your fingertips and being aware of moving the arm. Raising the arm is a meditation. Slowly raise the arm. Make everything very slow for this time so you can feel it raising. Then consciously opening the mouth, feel that. Placing it on your tongue, what that feels like. Close your mouth, but don't chew yet. Then lower your arm, lowering, lowering. Maybe close your eyes for this bite. Let your eyes be closed. And then begin to chew and taste and swallow quite mindfully. Stay mindful, be 
aware when you, if, if you want to, you can be aware after you've swallowed, see if you can feel it go down your esophagus to your stomach, if you really attend to. And whenever you're done, let your eyes open. What did you notice as you ate the raisins? Anyone, please. Sweetness. Sweet. Was it very sweet? Just mm-hmm. right. Just right. What someone else say about it? Intense. Intense. Do you think that we spike these raisins? <laughs> LSD in the raisins. Do you know why it was so intense? Anybody? Because you were there. That's right. That's what makes something intense. We can go out to restaurants, and there are certainly thousands in the Bay Area. Northern French, Italian, seafood, um, grilled cuisine of some gourmet type, whatever it is. And you have this fabulous meal, some exotic food, Ethiopian, whatever. Um, Nice conversation, good glass of wine and stuff. At the end of the meal, you're hungry. How come? Because you were so busy talking and looking around, whatever, you didn't really taste it. So the first piece of this is that you get there to taste it. And it really changes your relation to food to be that way. Also, you find that how much you eat changes. Did anybody feel that there was a lot to just two raisins? We were going to do a book, The Beverly Hills Vipassana Diet. The only one rule is that you really pay attention when you eat. Now, what else did you notice, anybody? It seemed larger. Again, through your attention, it filled your awareness. Someone else. The sound of everyone chewing. Sound, right. The room became sal. The whole room salivated. It was like water. Well, that's interesting, because what you start to see in that um, are the what are called the four elements. The whole of Buddhist psychology can be seen in the bite of raisins. For example... Earth, air, fire, and water are the four elements in Chinese or Indian or Egyptian or Greek. All of the traditional systems have them. And those aren't just ideas. They're the way we experience through our senses. Earth means hard or soft. So the raisins went from hardness, as you chew them, to softness. Air is the element of movement or vibration. So they went from being still to movement as you chew them. Fire is the element of temperature. They went from being cool as you chew them. They got warmer with your body. Water is the element of cohesion or fluidity. They were cohesive and then they got more watery. And your whole body, all the physical experience, is just the play of earth, air, fire, and water, plus a color and the sound form vibrations of different kinds. That's all. And then we make, we add names to that. But the more closely you pay attention, it's not the name. It's each moment a changing color, changing sound, changing earth, fire, uh, pressure, patterns. And the more deeply you feel into life, the more you feel it as a stream rather than as something that's solid. The names make it solid, but the direct experience is movement. 
Now, how many people noticed that the flavor didn't last so long? You chewed it for a while, and then the flavor went away, and you still had to keep chewing. Did anybody notice that? That you, the, the last part of the chewing, it wasn't so flavorful? Some people noticed that that was so. That's often where I see people's hands reach out and stick a few more raisins in there. They'll chew for a bit, not even ready to swallow yet, and the flavor kind of dies out, and then get a couple more in there. <laughs> Why do we do that? Because there's the pleasure, the flavor, it's sweet, it's pleasant, and then what comes? Grasping. Let's get more of that. And so we try to get more in a row, get the next hit, even before we've swallowed the last one. So you get to see the whole cycle, again, of Buddhist psychology, of how our life, which has this array of constantly <laughs> changing, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, pleasant, unpleasant experiences, all the time, every day, moment after moment, it's pleasant and it's unpleasant, our unconscious response is to keep grasping the pleasant and try to fight away and resist the unpleasant, and so we're always at war. We can't really come to rest with things as they are. And here, you see that desire arises as soon as it's sweet to keep it going. And then you learn a different thing, which is to notice the sweet and then notice when it goes. And be aware of its absence and be with whatever's next. So you begin to see how you can learn through eating as much as any other meditation. Here's another part of it to do if you want to work with this at home. See what voice it is. You eat your meal, chewing, tasting, feeling the elements, being aware of desire, hunger, lack of it. Really studying what hunger is like and so forth. Then see what voice it is that tells you to stop eating and which one you follow. There will be, for most people, at least a half a dozen voices. Your stomach may speak first. Had enough, comfortable. Then your tongue might say, nah, that stuff over there was real good. Let's have a little more of that. And your eyes will say, yeah, we haven't even tried the dessert over there yet. <laughs> then your mind will come in and it'll say, nah, you're getting too fat. You shouldn't eat that. I have a different opinion. Then your mother will come in and she'll say, you should finish everything on your plate, dear. You know, And you will hear your mother, your mind, your tongue, your belly your eyes, and a few other people, perhaps, all with opinions about how much or how little you should eat. The point of it is, is not which of those voices is right. I'm not going to say anything about your mother, right? <laughs> but rather to begin to listen at the end of a meal so that you make conscious those voices and start to see which ones you follow. The whole art of living wisely depends on our paying attention. Can you understand that as I speak of it? Okay. So that's the eating meditation. Any questions about that? Can we finish our meal? Yes, please do. <laughs> and you might experiment. You might take a meal every week even where you eat mindfully. Or a snack once a day where you just eat an apple and make it a 15-minute apple meditation. It is extraordinary just to bring consciousness to that. And it really affects your well-being. That it's so difficult to do it with hot food. With hot food? You mean because the food gets... Uh huh. So then you have to note the unpleasant quality of, of, hot, of hot food turning cold or impatience. Now, all those things. You, we used to go out with our begging bowls in the morning and you get food and then you walk five miles back to the monastery. 
and share it with the other monks. It'd be an hour later before you'd eat it. Whatever they threw in your bowl, you ate. And then you got to really watch all your opinions about food. Oh, this morning I got a mango. How wonderful, you know. And then you have to share it with somebody else. Oh, I don't get to keep my mango. I wish it were hot. (laughs) Now, here's another way you can work with meditation. This is the walking meditation. And it will give you um, another sense of the spirit of what it means to live in a meditative way. And I'll just demonstrate it. We won't have time tonight to practice it, really. But you can practice it when you go home. If you do one more meditation after this class, my recommendation is you practice this for 15 minutes or 20 minutes so you get some sense of how it will work for you. What you do is find, either in your house or outside, is that you can walk back and forth that is probably 20 or 30 steps in length, say twice as long as this area. And the first thing you do is you just go to that place and you stand still. You feel your feet on the ground outside in your shoes. You don't need your shoes off. Just feel the contact with the earth. You get sailed in your body. You place your hands in front or in back in whatever way is comfortable for you, your sides. And you bring your attention to be here. Now for the walking, instead of working with the breath, you let go of the breath. And we were doing in and out of the breathing. Here, instead of in and out, we'll do lifting and placing of the foot. So you stand, you feel yourself present, you feel the breeze if you're outside, you smell the smells, you you sense your body, and you really get here. And then you direct your attention, as you did with the breath to feel that, you direct your attention to feel your feet on the floor and the energy and sensations in your legs, the pants brushing your legs, the hardness, the stiffness, whatever you feel of having feet and legs. And then you begin to walk mindfully, lifting, placing. You can say softly these words if you like using the mental notes. Lifting, placing. Mostly what's important is to feel the steps. The words are 5%. To feel the heaviness of your foot change to lightness. Feel the movement in your leg. Feel the lowering and the touching of it and the contact, and it gets stiff and heavy. Lifting, placing. Feeling it. Lifting, placing, like Tai Chi or like some dance. It can be graceful. Lifting, placing. You get to the end of 20 steps. You stop, center. You turn around. Lifting, placing. Lifting, placing. Turn the other way, and you go back the other direction. And you walk back and forth. Generally a little slower than usual, so you're not on automatic pilot, so you're more present. As you walk, if your mind wanders off and you notice it, just bring it back. If it goes far away, you move all the way to Colorado, open a seed shop, have a year of business, and decide that you're going to have a party, invite all your old California friends to visit you, and you're planning the menu, and all of a sudden you go up. Then you come back. You say, all right, I've been away. You stop. (laughs) You center yourself again, and then back lifting, placing. So that you're really here as you take each step. Or if you want to look at something, you stop and look at it. Be aware of seeing, seeing, appreciating, whatever it is. That's finished. Feel yourself there. Again, you start lifting, placing. Now, one thing about walking back and forth, it's not a nature walk. You're not walking around looking at everything at all. You're just doing it meditatively, walking back and forth and being in your body. 
You can vary the pace. If you're sleepy or walking slow doesn't work, walk a little quicker, lifting, placing, or just placing, placing, placing. If that's the speed you're walking, whatever speed works to keep you most aware, that's the speed that's the most important. You can experiment what speed will keep you really present. Now, even the most dim-witted or ambitious meditator gets the point pretty quickly in walking because you're going back and forth that you're not going anywhere. You get to one end and you turn around and you go the other direction. No matter how hard you're trying to get enlightened, you're not going anywhere. So that you see pretty quickly the point is not to get some place, but it's to be where you are. Okay? You leave your eyes open to do it. You're just kind of downcast. Stand up for just a second. Let's do this. Close your eyes gently. Feel your feet on the floor. Spread your feet about a foot apart, shoulder width or so. Now shift your weight slowly onto your left foot. Feel what that's like. Now one leg is stiff and heavy and hard. The other is empty and light. The knee could bend easily. You can even bring your heel off the floor, but not your toes. And then slowly shift your weight back the other way to the other side. Feel what that's like. The stiffness and pressure of one leg. And then take a tiny step forward, just an inch or two with your left foot. Put it down, lifting, placing, that simple. Shift your weight forward onto your left foot. Yeah. Then take a tiny step with your right foot parallel to it, lifting, placing, that easy. Back to center. Let your eyes open. Sit back down. That simple. It's just feeling in your body. Not doing it with your eyes closed, particularly. We just did that because it helps you to get an initial sense of what I mean by feeling your step. You do it with your eyes open and you walk back and forth. Questions about walking meditation, anyone? Please. Would you be down in such a confined area? No, it could be 30 or 40 or steps or so. A routine place rather than nature walk. If you do it as a kind of wander around walk, what happens is you get distracted and all kinds of other things generally. However, <laughs> if you jog or if you run or you do a lot of walking in nature, you can do that meditatively as well. Other questions about walking? Please. I find that I sort of set up this rhythm. Am I missing the point? No, it's okay if there's a rhythm. But what's important is to really feel the moment. So you can find a rhythm in the breath or in the walking, and what it will tend to do is make your mind a bit dull. You can establish in the la, 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 more than sensing how one breath begins and the next one ends and the difference between them, or in the walking, feeling one step and the contact, and then a whole new step being born and dying. The important thing in the meditation is to stay connected with the changing experience. Let the rhythm be background and mostly try to feel a new way each breath or each step as best you can. 
Yes. A lot of this reminds me of children in the sense. I mean, when we were walking, it's like learning to walk again. Yes. Yeah. It is recapturing some of the new spirit of a child. It is like walking again, which is not to say that children are wise, enlightened beings. They do live more in the moment, but they also have a lot of greed and fear and misunderstanding. And so it's reclaiming that presentness of children, but with a maturity of wisdom and understanding and compassion. Okay, let me speak a bit further about integration and how you can work with practice in your daily life. And then we'll do, at the end, uh, a different meditation, a meditation on loving kindness as a way to close. So the spirit, as you can see, is one of integration, of really bringing mindfulness into your speech, into your walking, into eating, into relations with one another. It's also a spirit of simplicity. Like that story from the Dalai Lama, there's a story... I went to see uh, another Tibetan master, Dujim Rinpoche, who was the head of the Nyingma school, one of the four main lamas of all of Tibet. And I talked to him about my practice and so forth. This was in the early years of my teaching. And at one point, I asked for his help. I said, I teach meditation retreats for large groups, 50, 100, 200 people that last 10 days or two weeks. And after I do two or three in a row, I get really tired. I get burnt out sometimes, or I get overwhelmed. I don't want to hear another person's suffering or difficulty or problem. I get irritable. It's it's hard for me. Is there a way that I can practice so that that won't happen? Can I do a tantric practice, surround myself in white lights, sacred mantra, something that will protect me? So he first asked, what my precepts were. Did I keep the basic precepts that we talked about in the first week as the basis of spiritual life, of non-harming through care with sexuality and intoxicants and money and non-killing? And I said, I'm pretty good with those. You know, I have my moments, but I keep the five precepts pretty well. So then he asked a lot more about the retreats and the way I practice and teach. And he said, yes, I can help you thought, great, you know, he'll give me this visualization to visualize the bodhisattva of infinite power holding a sword that cuts through all of the yucky stuff that I don't (laughs) want to deal with and brilliant white light and nothing will ever touch me again, you know, and I'll be invincible (coughs) or something. And he asked a bunch more questions about the whole way I taught. And then he said, yes, what I recommend for you is this, that you teach shorter retreats and take longer vacations. (laughs) The Dharma is very straightforward. If it's something weird, it doesn't feel right, it's esoteric, it's strange, then what it is is weird, esoteric, or strange, but it's not the Dharma. The Dharma is good in the beginning, good in the middle, good in the end, and it's very straightforward. That's very simple. It's not to be idealistic about things, but to relate to them from a deep place of truth and understanding of compassion. There was one Zen master, a friend of mine. You know, in Zen they teach, uh, the language they use is that when you do something, do it fully. When you walk, just walk. When you eat, just eat. 
When you sit, just sit. Be present with each thing. But he was sitting in the morning in his Zen center this morning, particular morning, eating his breakfast and reading the morning paper. And one of his students came and got very upset and said, you know, what kind of example are you, the Zen master? You say, when you eat, just eat. When you read, just read. And here you are sitting and eating and reading the paper. What kind of eating meditation is that? And he looked up and he said, when you eat and read, just eat and read. (laughs) It's not to make a trip about it or to get idealistic, but it's to bring awareness and consciousness or mindfulness to what we do, to make that our life. I cannot stress enough the importance of training You have had five piano lessons in probably the most important thing and the most important discipline and art that you'll ever have in your life. Not Vipassana per se, but the art of the spiritual life, of the heart of inner awakening, whatever form it takes. Somebody asked the Dalai Lama, how can you know if your spiritual practice is working for you? And he said, well, you have to measure it in the right period of time. 10 years, 20 years, you see if something of benefit has come to you. You know, one lifetime, two, three lifetimes maybe. He can look back, it's easy for him to say, right? (laughs) It's not a short thing. If you want to have some value of it, you must do a regular practice, and you have to do it over some period of time. You won't learn piano or oil painting in a few quick lessons, I promise you. And this is very much the same, only deeper. So it requires that understanding. Now, some people ask, how do you put together sitting and the world of service, of caring for other beings? Isn't it kind of selfish to sit in a way when there's the nuclear arms race and all the rest of this? You can make a good case for either one. On one side, all of the suffering of the world that is experienced the starvation, the wars, the difficulties, a great deal of it is caused by human beings, by greed, by fear, by prejudice, by hatred. There's enough food and enough oil and enough energy. There's just too much prejudice and fear and greed and anger. And so what the world needs is not another revolution and not another demonstration. You know, one revolution supplants another, just goes round in circles. It needs somebody who faces those things and really understands how to be free of fear or how to not be caught in their own aggression and prejudice. It needs not more oil or more energy or more food, but more love and really deep compassion and wisdom. And so it's a radical political act to sit because somebody's finally facing that and learning about it. And then you can bring it alive in the world. If you, if you haven't learned it in yourself, how can you change the world? Do you understand that? Mm-hmm. Now, the other side is that we still build 3,000 warheads a year, nuclear killing bombs. We spend $1 trillion a year on killing machines to kill and maim and harm people, women, children, men of all kinds. And they're used worldwide. We're wrecking the environment, the ozone, the Amazon. And it's not a time for us to just sit. 
we also need to respond to that. So which do you do first? There isn't a right answer. It's important that there are people who are sitting in caves in the Himalayas and do nothing with the whole of their life but develop compassion and infinite loving kindness for the world. They affect us. I'm sure they do. I promise you they do. And it's important that there are people who are working in political and economic ways to change things, but not from anger or aggression, because it won't change it. When we traveled in India, my wife and I, on one of these trips, she had a series of terrifying dreams of death. And she thought she was going to die, actually. And then she had this dream of her brother throwing up something, and just this terrible dream. And then the next evening, she had this beautiful dream of him with the two spirit guides. She has two Native American spirit guides that come to her at times in her life of uh, when she really needs guidance. And that he was there, too. It was very strange and a scary time. A week later, we received a telegram that he had died. He had committed suicide, actually. And he had died the night she had the dream of him in the fashion that she had dreamed that. Very painful in many ways. But fortunately, she had the dream the next night of him being just fine after that, being one of her spirit guides. How could it be? We were in Mount Abu in Rajasthan at an ashram that she would have that dream of her brother dying on the night that it happened, a week later get that telegram. Uh, I ask you, how is that possible? You know how it's possible. Because we're connected. We're really, really connected with one another. The whole world is connected. And what you do in your heart affects the world. So that's one side. The other side is to serve. Your practice is to give, to love, to serve. And so there are times to go and work in the refugee camps, and there are times to do AIDS work, and do it. Thank God you have your sitting. Do it from a place of understanding. Do it from a place of letting go, rather than a place of being something special. I went to see a fellow who was in the hospital. I think I told told you the story early. Did I tell you the story about the guy who had a brain tumor? Uh, and his life was so changed by coming that close to death. He lived in a really different way after he had faced death. Please, the basic teaching of spiritual life is not to wait. Because you don't know that you have time. It's actually to start to live now the way you'll wish you had lived when you come to the end of your life. Because there aren't many questions at that time. Did I love well? Did I really let myself live in a conscious or full way? To care for myself and the earth, to learn to let go and be free, because you really need to learn that. That's the art of living. Now, a few more things. I've said before, that a daily sitting practice is critical, and I've described it. You need a place, a regular time. It's useful to have some spiritual books to read to remind you, to not be idealistic about it, but just to sit and take what you get. Other things that are helpful, tapes are good, just to remind yourself. Driving and listening to tapes can be helpful for certain people. Support that we give for one another 
the Buddha was sitting in the forest and his attendant said to him one day, it seems to me, O Buddha, that half of the holy life is having good friends. And the Buddha said, not so, Ananda. Ananda often asked the questions that weren't quite right. And Ananda said, well, what is it then, please, sir? And the Buddha said, in fact, the whole of spiritual life is sangha, is having good friends, is kalyanamitra is the word, is, is association with noble friends and with good uh, or noble ways of living and noble ideals and noble practices. And there's a tremendous support that we give to one another because we swim upstream in spiritual life. The values of the culture, if you watch TV or open our magazines or, or whatever, are not values that are primarily based on non-harming and on compassion and generosity and uh, wakefulness and not being caught in the material things. That's not the values of our culture. We need help. Basically, take all the help you can get. So... Do a retreat sometime. Day-long retreats after these classes will be a piece of cake. Ten-day retreats are really wonderful. And there's a variety of them throughout the year. Ten days of sitting and walking in silence, Dharma talk in the evening. You usually sit for 45 minutes, then you walk for half an hour, 45 minutes. You never sit too long, and then you go walk and sit again. And in ten days, you get so still and so deep you really learn much more the art of meditation. It's as if you went off on a camp to learn rock climbing, and you spent 10 days doing nothing but rock climbing, or 10 days doing nothing but painting. You'd really learn a lot. So they're very deep, and they're wonderful, and I recommend them to people. It's not that you're supposed to become a meditator. but that this is a practice and a way, a tool, a discipline, something that you can use to recover or reclaim your true nature, your deepest love, your greatest compassion, your deepest wisdom. There was a young girl who wrote a letter to Ramdas after our first summer at Naropa Institute where we all talked together in 1974, Trumpa Rinpoche, Ramdas, Joseph Goldstein, a number of us, she went home to parents who were fundamentalists who thought she was possessed and wanted to exorcise her or have her deprogrammed. And she talked about how difficult it was. And in the end of her letter, she said she had figured something out. She said, I realize that my parents hate me when I'm a Buddhist, but they love me when I'm a Buddha. Can you hear the difference? It's not to become a Buddhist or a meditator. Spare your friends and family that. <laughs> it is to become a Buddha, which is your birthright, which is your true nature. And to do that is not so easy. It's wonderful. It's also not so hard. One teacher said there's the easy way and the true way. But it requires your care and your surrender and your discipline and your willingness to face yourself through some practice. It's not just an idea. And I hope the practice that we've done here gives you a sense of how you can work with your body and your breath and your feelings and sounds and eating 
and speech as spiritual life. I'd like to end in a couple minutes doing this loving-kindness meditation, and maybe with one last story, but we'll take a few minutes for last questions before I do that. I found what you saying very helpful, and I'm still having a problem with the acceptance of what is and the need to fight evil. Hmm. Do you know the the serenity prayer from AA? How, God grant me the to accept what I cannot change, the courage to change, and the wisdom to know the difference. That is what it is. The first step that's necessary is acceptance, even of evil. If you want to face Hitler or you want to face the nuclear arms race, which I see is worse now, the first thing you have to do is really look it in the eye and say, we're building 3,000 nuclear warheads a year. These people are nuts. We have this program called MAD, Mutual Assured Destruction, which is the program for the military in the two biggest countries of the world. We are arming. We are, we are paying our budget deficit and our trade deficit by selling killing machines to every country almost that will buy them. We are arming the planet in order to pay our import-export duties. So the first thing is you got to face it and sit and really feel what that means. And then if you're ready to get up and be angry at those people, what you are is them. So that doesn't help very much. And I think that the demonstrators outside the Pentagon during the Vietnam War, you know, if anything, might have made it last longer. Those generals were inside saying, I'm not going to stop this war with those demonstrators out there, you know, protesting. I mean, I think that's how it worked. It created its opposite. So first you face it, and then secondly, you find some other place in yourself that's deeper. The place that Martin Luther King spoke of, or Gandhi, in which to relate from a fearlessness and compassion. And you say, I must do something. But you do it from a place not of separateness or making enemies, but of seeing the suffering and saying, this requires a response, and it requires one now. Does that help? I'm glad you asked that. Please. I've been wondering whether the meditation is a discipline that the purpose and effective is not the ability to meditate, but the ability to have the residual of that applied to your actual life in the world. Yes. Meditation is called meditation practice. And it's called practice because you practice it in order then to be able to live it. Its purpose is to create a different way of our living. That's correct. Otherwise, it's useless. You know, you, you might as well watch TV or take drugs or something like that. I mean, you just want a little experience or go to Baja or Bali or something like that. All right, let's do our last meditation and then we'll end. Sit comfortably for this one. This is a loving-kindness meditation, which is, in essence, a complement to the Vipassana, and that you can do it at the beginning or end of a sitting as a way to bring a spirit of that kindness to your sitting practice. So let your eyes close gently. Let your body be soft and your breath be soft. And then bring your attention to the area of the heart. See if you can feel the heart and the breath together as if you could breathe into the heart 
and breathe out. Feel your breath as if it came in and out, right there at the heart center. And then traditionally, the loving-kindness meditation begins by directing loving-kindness toward ourselves. Because if there are things that we hate or can't accept in ourselves, it's very hard to be loving of those things in others. So through the words, I say, try to develop the feeling or the spirit or the sense and the thoughts of loving-kindness for yourself first. May I be filled with loving-kindness. May my heart open with kindness and peace. You deserve it. All beings do. May I be filled with the spirit of loving-kindness. May I be peaceful. Feel a compassion for yourself as well, for your struggles and sorrows. We all have our pain and our sorrows. May my heart open and may I touch this sorrow with compassion and loving kindness. Sense yourself as a child. You were a little child once who didn't have to, who shouldn't have had to do anything to earn love. Little children simply are there to be loved. And then with your heart, hold yourself as this child. With great kindness, you've come into this life May you receive all of the experiences of the body, all of the feelings, all of the moods and thoughts with the spirit of loving kindness. May you be peaceful. Now think of someone you love a lot. Bring them into your heart. Share the feeling. 
May they too be filled with loving kindness. May their hearts open, be happy. Feel a compassion for their sorrows and struggles, how much you love them and would help them. May they be filled with loving kindness and peace. Let another person or two into your heart that you love. Let it grow bigger. May they be happy and their hearts open. Loving kindness and peace. And let your heart open further, letting all your friends, people you love. May they all come into your heart. May they all be happy. May they be filled with love and kindness. Let it grow further. Let that spirit fill this room, all of us who've sat together for this five weeks. Let there be a field of loving kindness so that all of the 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows that make up every human life can be received with this heart open compassionate, loving and free. And sense or feel or imagine it gets bigger than this room. Let it go in every direction in front and behind, to the left and to the right, above and below, to fill San Anselmo and the Bay Area and the whole of the earth as if you could cover the earth with your feelings of loving kindness. Picture the earth as a ball that you could hold in your arms. 
and take it into your arms in your heart and hold it, all of the oceans and continents and the multitude of beings, the whales and fishes and birds, the insects and trees, the jungles and deserts and people. And hold that earth with the heart of loving kindness and compassion. May all beings be touched by the heart of loving-kindness. May all beings, those newly born, those in pleasure, those struggling and sorrow, those dying, those in between, may every creature and being be touched and opened and healed by the force of loving kindness and compassion. And may the power of our heart and our goodness and our love bring that light to the world and bring a freedom to our lives and those of all beings. This meditation, as I said, can be used to start or end your sitting if you want to do a little loving kindness to soften yourself before you practice, or when you've gotten quiet to extend that feeling. Some people find it artificial, it feels mechanical, was that so for a few of you? Probably. And if so, that's all right, too. You can experiment and find words or phrases that make it work better for you. Or you might find that it's just not your thing, which doesn't mean you're not loving. Be loving enough then just to let that go and go back to your breath or the next body sensation. It is an exercise. But it's a meditation that if you work with it, most people find actually can develop and cultivate. And if you do it daily or regularly, it gets stronger. Whatever you put in the garden and nourish and fertilize, it starts to grow. The nice thing about it is you can do it not just sitting. You can do it walking down the street. May this person be happy and may that one be filled with loving kindness. And pretty soon you feel good with all the people going by on the street or in slow traffic. You can do it on the bus. You can do it in the airplane. There's the story of Kalu Rinpoche, that's the last story I'll tell you, who's this wonderful 85-year-old Tibetan Lama, the master of the yogas of Naropa, this gaunt old guy who lived in a t cave in Tibet for 12 or 15 years in the earliest part of the century. Uh, now he travels a great deal and kind of represents Tibetan Buddhism. And friends of mine took him one day to the Boston Aquarium, which is like the big Monterey Aquarium, three-story high tank full of sharks and sea creatures and all these a hundred different tanks of crustacean 
and uh, tropical fishes and all kinds of eels and colored beings of every kind. And he loved it, and he went through kind of looking at all these beings. And as he went by each tank, after he was done looking, he would touch the glass softly, which you weren't supposed to do, but he couldn't read the sign. And then he would say a mantra. He would say, Oh, money, pardon me, whom? And then he'd go on to the next one, Oh, money, pardon me, whom, to each. And somebody said, What are you doing? Why do you do that? And he said, Oh, I tap on the glass to get the attention of the beings inside. And then I bless them so that they too might be liberated. And that's the way he goes through his life. That every being he meets, may you too be free. May you too be happy. May you too be liberated. It's a pretty amazing way to meet beings as they come into your life. You can practice that. And if you do it on the airplane, you're sitting there, instead of reading your junk book or whatever you do on airplanes, you put it down for a few minutes and you do the loving kindness. May that older man over there be happy and peaceful. May that teenager over there be peaceful, at least. And may that young child be filled with loving kindness, compassion. May that person... Pretty soon, you feel a relationship to all the people on the airplane. And you don't even know them. Now, I don't mean get weird about it. You know? <laughs> don't let them know. You just sit there and do it. But then when the plane lands or the bus stops, you could almost wave goodbye to these people. They become your friends. Bye, I'll see you later. Have a good life or whatever it is. Because you've connected with your heart to those other beings. Do you understand that? It's wonderful. And all these things can be trained and nourished and cultivated and developed use these tools and work with them well. If you want to go very deep in your spiritual life, you can. That's all. A chant for a minute, and then we'll end. Hantamayang Buddha Ratana Satinayanja Karoma Se Namo Tatsa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Samputatsa Bhutang Sarananga Chami Dhammang Sarananga Chami Sankhang Sarananga Chami Anichavata Sankara Upatawa Yadamino Upakitawa Niruchanti Desang Upasambo Sukho Anijavata Sankara. All things are impermanent. Upatawa Yadamino. They have the nature like seasons to arise for a time, to change and pass away. Upakitawa Niruchanti. To see this, to come to know this deeply. Desang Upasamo Sukho. And to live in harmony with this truth brings the highest happiness. So I thank you.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.